Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, The Packer House Method, originally published in the annual anthology Infinity One in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection, Stories from the Old Hotel. So, Brandon, this is a, uh, a strange little story that is essentially... I think, a cozy mystery. It has an old woman who loves to talk about her family history. It has tea, and it has murder. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, one of the more tightly constructed stories of Gene Wolfe's short stories that we've read so far. Um, it's got a little of arsenic and old lace in it with <laughs> some real dark stuff as well. Yeah, some real dark stuff. So I think let's uh, let's not keep listeners from it, Brandon. Uh, why don't you take us through the plot of The Packer House Method? Yeah, happily. And I just want to say to our listeners, if I sound a little off, I've got a cold, but uh, hang in there with me. I think it'll be a quick recap. A social worker sits across from an old woman in the old woman's home. The social worker is a woman with sensible hair, round-lensed glasses, and large, kind brown eyes. The old woman looks almost too much the part of an old woman. She has snow-white hair, bifocals, a cat on her lap that meows periodically, almost like clockwork, and she is pretty focused on knitting. As she knits, she's distractedly describing something called the Packer House Method to the social worker. The social worker is troubled by something that has startled her in the house, and she is thinking she wishes she could leave. A meter reader interrupts the conversation between this old woman and the social worker. Frank, the meter reader, comes into the house of this woman, and he glides through the house on a kind of cart. The old woman continues her description of the Packer House method. She says it's named after Colonel Packer House, who's her cousin. Colonel Packerhouse desired that this method, whatever it is, we don't know at this point in the story, could be a, quote, living memorial to the living. And he initially hoped it would be useful for soldiers' families. But the, this old woman tells us that soldiers were often too damaged by death for the method to work on them. Right. And we learn here that Colonel Packerhouse was an officer in the Army Graves Registration Service. And this is the part of the military that deals with service members who have died. Uh, this includes recovering bodies on the battlefield, as well as transporting those bodies for burial. And this service began as a dedicated part of the Army uh, and, and other branches of the military during the First World War. It continues today, though, of course, Brandon, you and I know it by its current name, the Mortuary Service. That's right. And this is uh, an interesting piece of the story. I think by bringing this up, Gene Wolfe gives us the motivation for why this method was developed. And it's ultimately has very tragic roots and good intentions, but this is one of your classic examples of the road to hell being paved by these types of intentions. 
Yeah, but this this passage here, in fact, I might you you mentioned it already, Brandon, but I might actually even just read it the way that Wolf has written it because I think it's really beautiful, and I think for me, and I assume probably for you as well as as veterans, I think that this passage really haunted me, and I can see, of course, Wolf drawing on his his own experiences um, as a soldier here as well. Uh, I'll just read this passage uh, at the description of what the Packer House method, not what it is, but what it's for. Wolf writes. The colonel conceived of his method as a means of assuaging the grief of the sorrowing parents, wives, and sweethearts. But it was not really well suited, as he used to say subsequently, to a military application. So many soldiers are damaged by death. This is some beautiful language, but it really obfuscates what is in fact an absolutely horrifying thing, which is that a function, a feature of our civilization is that we build machines to destroy each other's bodies. And then bring grief and sorrow to the people who loved those humans. That's right. And I really love the ambiguity of that sentence as well. So many soldiers are damaged by death. This is not about living or dead soldiers. It's any soldier. (laughs) Um, There's something really wonderful about this sentence and the way Wolf weaves the ambiguity into it. Yeah, that's right. As we'll come to see in the story, the literal meaning of this is that their bodies are damaged in the act of dying, but that's not what the sentence says. The sentence could just as easily, as you say, Brandon, mean or be to be referring to soldiers who have been traumatized by having to be surrounded by death, having to witness death, having to be the cause of of death. And this, of course, is something that we've seen Wolf write about already in the, the Changeling, for example, is coming to mind. Well, it's only a fleeting moment and mention in this story, and Wolf moves on very quickly from this and, and almost never refers to it again. And so Frank, the meter reader, he glides back out of the room on this cart, and the social worker asks about the old woman's father, who we learn is the thing that startled her when he popped out of the kitchen just a moment ago. He was looking for a light to light his cigar. And then the conversation quiets for a time, we're told. And the social worker is listening for a tea kettle to go off. As this is all happening, the father reemerges from the kitchen, and we learn that he is on a platform. Now, the social worker seems startled again by the appearance of the old man, and the old woman now begins to describe the Packer House method. You mentioned it, Brandon, but I just want to emphasize here that what we see of this old woman's father is looking for a light for his tobacco product of choice. Uh, and there's a what the old woman says exactly is this. She says, that's what he does mostly, looks for a light. And I just want to emphasize that here in the recap, because I'm going to bring this up uh, when we get to the discussion. Oh, that's terrific. I basically ignored any... A symbolic reading of this story while I was reading it. (laughs) So the old woman begins to describe the Packer House method to this social worker. And what she says, prompted by a comment from the social worker, is that the old woman's father, the meter reader, and very soon we learned the cat, are not just dolls. Their brains have been preserved at the moment of their death. And their bodies are powered by the electricity that's either in the cart or on the platform. And... They're connected to those things that move around on the floor. The cat, we learn later, is a special case. And we also learn that they have a fan placed in them, which blows upward in order to stimulate the vocal cords so that they can speak. And we learn that electricity that powers them is the thing that stimulates 
the muscles, and this is what allows them to move in, in kind of like a pseudo-human way. Yeah, Brandon, there's something uh, really interesting here in, in how Wolf is describing this method of what is really just science fiction embalming or futuristic embalming and that he goes into an awful lot of detail about how this would actually work about how you could make uh, a dead body how you could reanimate a dead body such that it would be able to speak and to even interact to some degree with living people around it but it goes he goes on for quite a while about it and i was reminded here actually of house of ancestors and how much time wolf spent in that story talking about how an engineer if you know he or she were interested would actually go about constructing the dna double helix thousands of feet above new york thing and this seems to be kind of the same type of writing that wolf is in engaging in here where he really is drawing on his engineering background and is is i think probably working from some blueprints and diagrams and models that he sketched out for this story yeah that's that's a really good point he's learned a lot about economy of language though between the house of ancestors and now and this story is <laughs> about five pages long and house of ancestors was like you know fifty thousand words or something like that not really he really gets to the point here and he does it in a way that's not Again, as you and I have commented a lot about uh, in Gene Wolfe, it's not just an exposition dump. He is really good at hiding exposition. And unfortunately, when he is forced to do it in this story, I wonder if the whole design of this story was just a way that he could do exposition about this thing without having to do exposition. Like It just feels that way to me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's also great that you you point out that, of course, he has learned how to do that type of exposition much better. That was something we complained about in House of Ancestors, was that he didn't know how to do that exposition while making it also a part of the story. And he has figured that out now, and it's fantastic. There's just one more thing I want to bring up here while we're paused in the recap before I let you get back to it. I just want to emphasize for listeners something that you did already mention, which is this, that the reanimated dead people are although they are able to speak they do not breathe they have no breath and this is going to be important for our discussion as well yeah and the fact that they don't breathe and that they are powered by electricity like dead frogs in a science class uh, is really off-putting to the social worker and she says that she really must be going she vocalizes it now but the old woman says to the social worker that she shouldn't leave just yet because she, the old woman, is going to be leaving soon anyway. So just hang out, she says. And then the old woman remarks that her father had stomach cramps and, and so did Frank. And this is a little bit out of the blue. It's a bit of a non sequitur. At this point, Frank knocks at the door again. And the old woman explains to the social worker that Frank, again, this is the meter reader, that he can think and talk. And, and we've already exposed that Frank is one of these Packer House people. And this prompts the social worker to ask what the difference is between the dead who have been changed by the Packer House method and the living. How, how do these people differ? And she thinks for a moment the social worker does, and she answers her own question. And she says that the dead are alive, but they're crippled, perhaps, like someone who has to use a wheelchair. The old woman continues her explanation. And she says that the brain doesn't create any new memories, because the brain is frozen in time. And 
the old woman wonders, though, she kind of has this moment of reflection where if over time new memories can be created by these Packer House people, even though the brain has been hardened by resin. Again, the social worker states that she wishes to go home. This time, the old woman tells the social worker that she can't leave. And the old woman goes into this explanation about how when she dies, the old woman, she's going to have the Packer House method done to her. And she and Frank and Papa and the social worker will all be able to stay and talk and live in this routine forever. Yeah, there's a bit of detail here, Brandon, about the memories that Wolf um, calls some attention to. The old lady explains that Colonel Packerhouse himself has been subjected to the Packerhouse method. He is down at the headquarters for the company that sells this service, and he's on display, so to speak, there in kind of their lobby, and he still acts as a salesperson for the company. And the old lady says that he's quite good at it. And she mentions that he seems actually to be learning how to remember for longer, even though he's dead, that he is developed, starting to develop not quite a long-term memory, but perhaps something of a medium-term memory, that he is kind of, I don't know, we might, might even think of it in terms of outgrowing his programming. Yeah, that's a really good point. And she dismisses it immediately out of hand. She says something like, wouldn't that just be the most absurd thing? And I also want to point out here that when she's describing the social worker and this like kind of brain hardening to the social worker, she says, you'll see for yourself. And that's just an interesting line. I think we know by this point that the social worker is a reanimated corpse, but we don't quite know why all these people are stuck in the old lady's house. Yeah, and not the house of their own loved ones. Right, right. Um, and and it's to me, it's an interesting way of telling the story of the dangers of reanimation of corpses, which is like the <laughs> oldest dark, you know, the horror story is like the undead. It's an interesting approach to this tale is from the point of view of the living, perhaps. I, I'm not 100% sure if the old lady's alive or not, but uh, we'll we'll go on with the recap here. So the old lady mentions that a new social worker is coming to visit and that when she shows up, if she's out when this new social worker comes, could this old social worker let the new social worker know that there's tea waiting on the table for her? And so the old lady goes out and this now referred to as the old social worker is stuck with the ticking clock and a slow horror that fills her. She wants to cry, but there is no moisture in her eyes. And this is confirmation for that lurking suspicion that we've had since page two in this story. Yeah, Wolf uses the word agonizing in his description here. He says that after the slow horror filled her, there was an agonizing tightness in her throat. And this was really just an agonizing passage to read here. This is a creature, a person who is realizing that she is not alive, that she is dead, and that she is someone else's prisoner. And is horrified by it. Uh, my heart broke for this social worker here. I wanted wanted to stage a rescue operation. Yeah, well, she has no short-term memory, so this justifies the old lady's actions in, in her own mind. <laughs> it's, it's its own sort of terror. 
So the new social worker arrives, and she talks a little to Frank, because this new social worker doesn't know about the Packer House method. And the new social worker goes into the kitchen, as this note on the door suggests, which the old lady had left on the door. She remarks to Frank on the old man, who she calls now a grandfather, who was trying to light his cigar on the stove. The new social worker gets tea from the kitchen, and Frank says now that he was either going to tell her to drink the tea or not to drink the tea, but he can't remember. The new social worker also notices that the cat is shedding oddly. She's never seen a cat shed in this way. And I think we're meant to see here that the cat is just like losing clumps of hair all over the place because it's not growing new hair. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a really horrifying picture here, a horrifying image to conjure in your mind. And I do think it's worth pointing out here, as you say, Brandon, that the other corpses, the other reanimated corpses in the house know something is wrong and they have this impulse actually to warn her against drinking the tea but because they don't have long-term memories they can't do it but they know they want to they have some kind of emotional sense or even maybe even emotional memory that they themselves are horrified at being imprisoned here and they want to protect someone else from suffering that same fate, though they are about to fail in that. <laughs> yes, they, they really are. Um, in the background at this point, we have three staccato paragraphs that are all the clock ticked, the clock ticked, the clock ticked. And I think that that's um, kind of a really big key into the reading of this story is there's a lot of time resetting throughout the story through either the cat's meow or the, every time the woman begins explaining the Packer House method again, um, Wolf is constructing this story through uh, signals in language that let us know when we reach the end, which we're very close to, uh, kind of the true full horror of what's happening here. So the old woman comes back and she asks this social worker, our social worker, about the new girl. And this social worker she can't recall if anyone has arrived but she hears gagging from the other room and i wonder glenn if this is an echo of the past or or how you read that so i hope we can talk about that and the old woman remarks that this new social worker probably went to lie down probably because she had gas now this social worker the one who has been her point of view character for this story tells the old woman that she and Frank are getting married. And the old woman remarks in the most sinister possible way that they'll have to invite the minister for tea. <laughs> <laughs> and so grandfather, and now this is grandfather and not father, takes Frank out of the room by the elbow, uh, kind of in this celebratory gesture, and says, hey, do you have a match for these cigars we're about to smoke? And the social worker is shocked to see that neither of these men are walking. And so the old woman responding to the shock of the social worker begins to explain that it's the Packer House method. And now we realize that Gene Wolfe ends the story right where he begins it. Yeah, it's beautiful that the story is going to reset and happen again. We see that they are stuck in a loop here, that they're just constantly having this conversation. And it's, I think, as you point out too, Brandon, it's nice that Wolf emphasizes the ticking of the clock to highlight this use of 
time for us. And I think it's also worth pointing out that Frank, the meter man, and also uh, the old woman's father are coming through these false front doors on their little carts every few minutes, it seems. And I think if we, if we envision what that would look like, it would, we, we can see that it would, it would look remarkably like a cuckoo clock. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is a story that, in my mind, takes place really inside of a clock, of a well-engineered clock. And it's unclear to me if any of these characters are actually alive or if this is this hideous really dark picture of the undead which is you never get to experience anything new but you go through life in the same routine i don't want to go too far afield but this is kind of a a problem of our time i think that many people feel that there is nothing new to experience because much has been already experienced for us i don't know if there's a lot of that in this story but it's just kind of what this story conjures up for me in terms of food for thought. Well, uh, I think on the topic of food for thought, Brandon, let's just go ahead and move into our discussion. Well, Brandon, you've mentioned twice during the the recap that you're not entirely certain that any of the people that we meet in this story are alive. I think it's absolutely certain that no one is alive except possibly for the old woman whose house this actually is. But so, do you, do you think that she's alive or do you think that she is another Packer House method reanimated person? So I'm not sure, but it occurred to me as I was talking about the idea of the undead and the fact that there are no new experiences, and that's maybe a characterization of the undead, that it really doesn't matter if she's actually alive or not thematically. It would be a cool puzzle to kind of solve. And, and, you know, Wolf is very fond of these sorts of puzzles. But it doesn't really matter because whether or not she is a Packer House person, she's undead in the sense that she's unwilling to experience anything new in her own life. And she collects these pleasant people as trophies, these people who acted charitably towards her. And that makes her a monster of, of one kind or another. Yes, yeah, certainly monstrous. But I, I, I actually wanted to read her character with a little bit of pity. Not, not that murdering people and reanimating them and keeping them as prisoners in your house is a morally acceptable thing to do. But I felt like Wolf here was pointing to an old woman who is extremely lonely and who is herself terrified of death. And it's hard not to pity her in a way. So I did think that she was definitely alive. And one thing, of course, that I think points to her being alive is the title of the story itself, which is a pun, um, which is pointing out that the old lady is packing her house with dead people. And so I think both in the, the narrative and in the title itself, this old woman has agency in ways that none of the other characters actually do. I think so. She at least goes out and... We see the clock resetting, which is my reading of the clock ticked, the clock ticked, the clock ticked. When she's not there, the clock continues to function. And so I guess the only thing that suggests to me in this story that she's dead is that she says she's going to have this done to her so she can be in this Swiss clock forever. And that once she does die, there will be no way of knowing if she has died or not, because the clock will just reset. Yeah, and that line certainly points to some ambiguity. She may already have died, and this is the menagerie of her own of her own making. 
that we are witnessing as you know outside observers. Yeah. But I think it makes sense in the story, in the reading of the story, since the social workers are point of view characters, since we're kind of brought into the horror of being reanimated or realizing we've been reanimated with this point of view character, that the woman is not a Packer House product yet, but she is in this kind of psychoanalytic sense, undead. Yeah, I think that's a really great reading. So there are there are two categories of, of things that I really want to talk about here in our discussion, Brandon. And the first is on the topics of death, mourning, and grief. And the second will be on the topics of souls, brains, and personhood. Let's just start with death, mourning, and grief. So as we pointed out, Brandon, the Packer House method is designed to assuage the grief of the bereaved. It's not meant to actually stave off death. These people, they are dead. They are simply being falsely reanimated, like an automaton. But if this if this is really about assuaging grief, I have to wonder, Brandon, and this is a question that I, w- I want to pose to you, is this really a healthy way to deal with loss, to have the reanimated corpses of your family members, your loved ones, that you can interact with on a daily basis, even just in this superficial way? Does this strike you as healthy? Not in the least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So while you were asking that question, what came to mind to me is the beginning of Jorge Luis Borges' short story called The Aleph. It begins with uh, a death, a person who experiences grief through the fact that they saw a new like advertisement for a cigarette that they had never seen before. And the world has moved on while they are still stuck in this grief. And they have this kind of beautiful realization that's like, oh, the world doesn't stop. And in fact, the the idea of stopping the world truly for our grief and our sorrow and our mourning is, uh, is, a, is a very, very dark idea, I think, as we see in this story. There are religious traditions where you grieve, like sitting Shiva, which I think is a beautiful tradition, Mm -hmm. um, where you have your community of loved ones come and mourn with you for seven days and allow the world to slow down. But there's no way you can stop the world from functioning in your sorrow and grief. Yeah, and I think there's something horrifically unhealthy, actually, about trying to do that. And the the question, the real question that I have here, Brandon, to build on that, I, I was wondering, what happens to a whole culture that refuses to accept mortality? And although Wolf is telling us this story in such a, such a microcosm, almost a nanocosm, it's so small, but we, we get a hint that the Packer House method is a is an extraordinarily successful business that there are people are making use of this service all around the United States. So I, I have to wonder what happens to our culture when we refuse to let people die, when we refuse to accept their loss, when we refuse to complete the mourning process. And this seems to me to affect the old woman on just a profound level. Uh, She is so afraid of being left alone because of death, the death of her loved ones or the death of anyone she knows. She's so afraid of being alone that she is actually murdering people around her and collecting this shallow facsimile of them just to feel insulated from death. And at the same time, though, 
and, and maybe even more creepily, she looks forward to her own death because it will mean that she will be able to stay with her collection forever. And even though we know, and even though she says herself that that is not actually being alive, that she will be dead, that she won't actually be present there, she has somehow deluded herself into thinking that these dead people are alive and that if she preserves herself, she also will not die. And all of this is both horrifying and terrifying. Right. I think the, the, the really horrifying thing to me is that she's satisfied with this notion and it's strange to say, perhaps, but I think that is why Gene Wolfe chose an old shut-in as the main character of this story. Who knows how long she's been left alone. Frank was the only person who was checking in on her. And the social workers. And the social workers. And that's, that was her only contact with the outside world. Now, that's a little bit complicated by the fact that she does go out. This could just be her going to sleep like a normal person. You know, she doesn't necessarily have to go out. She just has to leave this tableau wound up at all times, you know, um, and it functions whether she's there or not. Though we, we do learn that some of the functioning works a little outside of her control with the social worker and Frank falling in love over this God knows how long period of time that they're trapped in this, you know, unmoving picture. But I do think that that is why we have an old woman as the main character is that in order to tell this story, you have to find a person who might be satisfied with its outcome. And I think this speaks to Wolf's Catholicism in a weird way. Um, Much of Christian charity is organized to visit and offer uh, yourself to widows and orphans. And this is clearly, though perhaps not a widow, a woman who has lost her community, which is a picture of a widow in Christian theology as well. And I think parishes... um, often pray for shut-ins. You'll see it in the bulletin of an announcement, like, these are the five people we're praying for this week. Bring them food. Visit them if you can. Um, And this woman is maybe forgotten by her community and as such has become very twisted in her thinking about the world. Yes, as I said before, she's lonely, and this is a a huge factor in what has happened to her to get her to this point of, you know, of of being the uh, the antagonist in a cozy murder mystery involving poison tea and (laughs) reanimating corpses. Uh, I love the poison tea. I mean, I really do love that in this story. It's it's one of the great details that's in the background of this story, but it's like it's so delightful. You know, it's the. Oh, I forget what it is in arsenic and old days, like blackberry brandy or something like that. Uh, that's just like, yeah, we'll take we'll take you in and give you a nice drink, and then your your life is better when you're dead. We know this about you. Yeah, it's a pretty delightful literary illusion here in what is really a terrifying story. And of course, it's important that the old lady is old because we have to have a character here who is thinking about mortality, who is concerned about it. As much as I can't imagine kids or adolescents or even 20-somethings really you know, being so profoundly affected by a culture that is able to reanimate its dead people instead of burying them and, and moving on, I started to think about people, people in our demographic, Brandon, people who are approaching or into their middle age, knowing full well about, about their own mortality, but not being too far removed from their sort of physical peak. 
And although this is certainly not the story that Wolf tells us, I wanted to sort of envision how this embalming method might be affecting different types of people. And something that occurred to me is that is is to envision people who would choose to commit suicide at a young age in order to preserve themselves at their physical peak or close to it, rather than allow themselves to become old, to become less than, that there's a risk of this, that the Packer House method sort of brings with it almost a risk of blurring the line between life and death and and really confusing even that boundary for people. That's a really interesting point. You know, there's a lot of language in this story about preservation and the brain is preserved at the moment of death. And the idea of your best years being behind you is a, is a very old idea, at least in American cinema. Probably it started in the fifties. I I don't know if it started before then, but at least in in terms of in terms of cinema, the like live fast, die young, the celebrity culture that produced the idea that youth is the best time of your life, and really cemented for generations that age after youth is not as noble or as dignified. There's not as much there. And in fact, to me, this is this is about this idea you brought up emphasizes something I think about a lot um, in American culture, which is a culture that worships potential above action. And as a result, we we worship our our idols of youth. And yeah, that's a really, really good point. So in the introduction to the the book uh, Stories from an Old Hotel, Wolf brings up that like this was just a science fiction story I wrote that's like a classic science fiction story where I took an idea and took it to its extreme logical conclusion and that like you put all that stuff in a bag and shake it up and you get a sci-fi story. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, he calls it a creative writing prompt. Right, right, yeah. right. But I think the other side of that, I think that's the exact right way to take it is then like, what is the real impact of this is, is what Wolf wants us to think about. And for me, uh, in, in just listening to that question and trying to respond to it, I really think it is about a cultural value of potential and youth that something like this could easily lead to not just lonely people killing others for their own benefit. Obviously, this old woman has a an ability to perform this method that is outside of the normal means. Perhaps she was involved in its invention and she still has what she needs to do it. But as a culture as a whole, why not die young and just relive your best memories? Yeah, and I I just want to reiterate, of course, that's not in Wolf's story at all. This is just something I was thinking about, and especially after I read these lines in the introduction to stories from the old hotel, that this was a creative writing prompt. I started thinking about what story I would write with that same prompt. And it's been a while, Brandon, actually, since we've invited listeners to write their own stories uh, from a prompt and send them into us. And I think this might be a good moment to to do that again. I don't think we've done it since House of Ancestors. So if some of our listeners want to take us up on this uh, writing prompt and write their story about the embalming method reaching perfection, we'd love to read them. Oh, yeah, that would be super awesome. <laughs> and just one more thing, Brandon, on the topic here of death and mourning and grief. These are ideas that have been much on my mind lately because they're they're topics kind of at the foreground of uh, the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery. And uh, Valerie and I have been getting ready to actually have a pretty uh, in-depth and intense conversation about the death rituals 
and grieving culture of various species in the Star Trek universe over on our uh, uh, Star Trek podcast, The Lower Decks. Yeah, and the way I think Star Trek has kind of really dealt with death and grieving has been fascinating, especially as they compare it to kind of, I think, the opening of the show, which is about a death ceremony. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, Valor and I are going to have a pretty good conversation about another science fiction story that deals with some of these issues. So if listeners are interested in hearing that, come on over to Lower Decks and uh, uh, check it out. Uh, But I think, Brandon, for you and I, now it is time to move on to my second category here, which is souls, brains, and personhood. So the first thing I want to do in this category, Brandon, is talk about some of our, our definitions of being alive and perhaps our definitions of personhood. And I, I want to tie this you know, as closely as possible to the text. And so uh, I want to remind you and remind listeners that the social worker asks, if they can think and move, how is it different from being alive? And the old woman claims that it's the memories, that the distinction between life and death is the ability to form long-term memories. And Brandon, I just want to submit this to you as a question, and especially you know, because you are someone who has a degree in philosophy, this is your background. Is this a good definition of personhood to you, the ability to form long-term memories? Is that being alive? Is that being a person? Not at all. Let me let me just say <laughs> not even a little bit. So, and here's the argument I'm going to take. It's going to be I'm going to take a little bit of a scholastic route here because I think that this was this has always been a problem for people concerned about souls. So what is a soul? Which is human beings aren't souls and other creatures are not. This is a very very old idea, but as that idea has changed and evolved, it's really become about um like something like cognition or or cognitive abilities that are closely associated with consciousness, which is this other cluster of ideas like a soul that we can't really point to in the material world in a way that we easily understand. So let's just, um, if I say soul, um, let's also think consciousness. So uh, Thomas Aquinas kind of recovered Aristotle for the Christian church in the 13th century, which up until that point had been um, at least one strain of it heavily influenced by something called Neoplatonism. I'm not going to go super into detail here, but the idea of um, faith, which is what, what does it take for a person to believe uh, in God? was very much a big question, and it was very much caught up in souls. So so one thing that came up was, does a person need to have a certain type of intellectual ability in order to have the proper faith? And again, this is about the impact of their soul, which is the animating force of life, the same way we think about consciousness. Thomas Aquinas came up with a very, very elegant solution. His solution to this was that there is something called the like simple faith, which any person of any cognitive ability, any mental disorder could still achieve. And this was under something a bigger thing, a bigger thing called common grace, right? These were really powerful ideas at the time that everybody's under this common grace and it's because of the fact that we have souls or consciousness. 
this ties back to the idea of human beings being made in the image of God. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, too many people who, at least on a gut reaction, disagree that consciousness is something that ties our race together. Um, And so the idea that we can create arbitrary distinctions between levels of consciousness and say this type of consciousness makes a person not a person and this level does is an idea that I find pretty repugnant and the arguments against it go really far back in in our history, um, in our really intellectual history as members of Western civilization. And while some of the maybe theological arguments are easily ignored or can slide away, I think that that if you find the common contemporary language, those arguments still stand pretty strong. Well, I'm glad you brought up souls here, Brandon. We are, it is in, in the heading here of the, the topic that we are in, and I'm going to get to that in, a, I don't know, about two more questions. And I'm also glad you brought up Thomas Aquinas and scholasticism. Uh, I'm actually talking about scholasticism in my uh, uh, course this week in my, at, at the university where I teach. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so, <laughs> scholasticism is pretty great. Aristotle's great. And scholasticism is great. Yeah, these things are, <laughs> these things are true. And, and of course, Thomas Aquinas is still foundational for the theology of the modern Catholic Church, um, even though perhaps the modern theology or the, of the, of the, or the theology of the modern Catholic Church, it, it dates from the 16th and 17th century, this period of the Counter-Reformation, or what we actually really now call the Catholic Reformation. And we talked a bit about this in our episode on Michael Swanwick's story, The Scarecrow's Boy, when we were looking at free questions of free will and questions of identity. But the Catholic notions of free free will that are articulated during that time, this time in early modernity, all draw on Thomas Aquinas. And it's clear that Wolf and many other science fiction writers are well-versed in Aquinas's notions of, of souls and consciousness, as you, you say, uh, and what that means for our uniqueness or our relationship with God and our, our sort of special place in the cosmos. Yeah, I think this is not even kind of remotely irrelevant in terms of speculative fiction these days. I just saw the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. This is the core question of the movie. There's two core questions of the movie, and I won't spoil it. The other one, um, kind of philosophical questions about humanity, but consciousness is one of them. And I think all of us who are concerned about things like justice or ethics immediately react negatively, whether or not we're able to articulate why to the notion of consciousness being denied a human-like person. Well, and I think that that's here in the story, Brandon, and this will kind of lead into my next question. I interrupted your recap to really emphasize the social worker's reaction to discovering that she's not alive, to realizing that she's dead. In that moment, she is a fully conscious person who is self-aware and has an intense emotional response to her captivity, to her imprisonment. And 
there's another moment here in the story where Wolf also kind of alludes to something, maybe not something exactly like that happening, but something that's related to the the questions that I think are raised by this dead person's sudden self-awareness in the story. And that is that Colonel Packerhouse is beginning to form long-term or at least longer-term memories because he's active all the time, because he's engaging with, with new people. He's developing longer-term memories and is becoming a better salesman, is what the old woman says. But we could read that as becoming more of a real person. And so that's really the question, I think, here, Brandon, that Wolf invites us to ask is, is Colonel Packerhouse becoming fully conscious again, fully a person again, as his long-term memory is coming back? I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect it's something like yes. <laughs> and I think I think I really want to hear from our listeners about that. But what really struck me as you were asking that question and and I was thinking back to your note during the recap about light, but also as we're talking about souls and consciousness, um it really just struck me that there's a lot of breath imagery in this story. And that's a major component of the imagery used to describe souls in Christian theology. And I think Wolf uses this imagery to great effect in this story, mostly to signal who is dead and who is alive. Yeah, that's right, Brandon. You've actually perfectly transitioned into my next section. My two next sentences, the the topics were light and breath. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's get back to souls here. Right. So the, the old woman's father is looking for a light and can't find it. It is hard not to see the, the word light there as being fraught with Christian symbolism, that the, the light of God, the light of truth, the light of heaven. He is dead, but he can't find his way to the light as he should, is perhaps one reading there. But he also has no breath, which, Brandon, as you say, the the Latin word for breath is spiritus. It's spirit, which literally just means the ability to breathe when we read that in classical Latin. It only comes with Christianity that this begins to also mean soul, the way that we use spirit. Right. Wolf says here, these people have no soul. He's looking for the light, and he can't find it. And he's also in a state of constant anxiety and anger because he has no soul, but yet he's still walking the earth. Right, and it's artificially placed. I mean, this this is not your typical undead imagery, but I think Wolf is drawing on the tradition he knows best to create a picture of the undead that is truly horrifying. Locked in time, the ghost is unable to leave the machine, so to speak, and even the soul is artificial. The, the the fan that blows up from their leg or wherever to stimulate the vocal cords. I think for Wolf, this is truly horrifying imagery. And I don't know if it really, really works for me in the same way. Though I can read this Catholic imagery and understand it, it doesn't horrify me. And that may be just because we have had nonstop representations of the undead since... Night of the Living Dead was released in, in cinema. <laughs> yeah, I think we've been pretty well desensitized to zombies at, at, at this point. But to me, Brandon, this all seemed to me, and especially if we bring into this the the social worker becoming horrified when she realizes that she's actually dead but is trapped, all of this read to me like Wolf painting a picture of animated dead people who are stuck 
in some sort of purgatory. They're unable to be fully people, but they're also unable to make their way to the light of God. I don't know what Wolf wants us to take from that, but that's certainly what I saw him pointing to. Well, I think we can say with some surety that Wolf is a reader of Freud and Jung, and maybe I think more so of Jung. And this notion of the undead is a big piece of psychoanalytic psychology and psychoanalytic theory as well. And it is exactly this that Wolf presents us, is the inability to change anything in your life and the giving up of the hope that it might be so. It's a total resignation. It's a living death. Think of like vampires, uh, these great sensuous beings who are unable to actually get any satisfaction from their activities, really. And they, they feed on life, but they have no life. And they represent they represent sensuality and the things that give life, like reproduction, right? The desire to reproduce, they're unable to create life. They can only take life. Zombies are the same way. They are undead. There's plenty of representation of zombies where they are just stuck in their routine. Shaun of the Dead is this great comical vision (laughs) of this where he doesn't even notice that the undead have become undead because he's himself is is undead in the in the beginning of the movie. These are kind of these representations of life stuck in these routines and there's no escape from it. And so you live a death. You live through a death. And I, I think Wolf is showing this. All these people in these stories, with the exception of the father, which there's a weird transition from father to grandfather there, are all people whose jobs are very mundane and routine. And it's a little sad to say that social work is the visiting of these people is is a government function. Meter reading, it's government function. These are your classic images of functionaries in society. And that is also often a very popular image to use when describing the undead. Yeah, those are some great observations, Brandon. And I do I do think, you know, listening to you talk about this, now I think that one of the, the what Wolf must be pointing to here is that if we're living in a culture in which death is meaningless, then life also is meaningless. But at the same time, if we're living in a culture in which life is meaningless, then death is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Yeah, it's it's really nihilistic. (laughs) It really is. It's like you encounter stuff sometimes where people, and I I think you and I have talked about this maybe off the air, but you encounter people who feel like there's nothing left to experience. There are no adventures left to live. There's nothing left to see or do because their identity is so keyed into a people who have already accomplished it. And they feel like their own experience is meaningless compared to a people group who have already done it. So like, why explore the Amazon? Why go see Machu Picchu? Why go see these the ruins of these great cities? Why go to Egypt? Why experience this for yourself? if it's already been experienced and documented. And, and and I think the question they're struggling with is, what's the difference between my own experience and someone else's? And that's, on some level, it's not exact, but on some level, it's the question that the social worker asks between what's the difference between me who cannot create new memories and those who can. 
Well, Brandon, the last thing I want to do before we sign off tonight is to draw a connection here between Wolf and that uh, that other renowned and great Catholic fantasist, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, I think, as probably most of our listeners know, spends an awful lot of The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and The Hobbit dealing with death in various forms. We can think of in The Hobbit, the necromancer, right? The, the death wizard. Uh the central function of of the rings in the Lord of the Rings is that they artificially draw out life and in doing so turn you into something that is twisted, something that is wraith-like. But but something that, that listeners might not know because it's it's really it's buried in the appendices, though I think you and I, Brandon, we know that Wolf has read the uh, Lord of the Rings appendices very closely, <laughs> right. as we will talk it we will talk about in future episodes. Uh, but also a, a central feature of the Silmarillion is that in Tolkien's fictional universe, death is this special gift that humans have received from Iluvatar, which is God, this is the, the, or what, what Wolf might call the outsider. Um, <laughs> death is the central gift of, of God for humans. That this is contrasted with elves in Tolkien who live forever, which I think for most of us reading that, we would think, gosh, being able to live forever, being immortal, seems like a pretty good deal. But that's never what Tolkien means. And that part of the Catholic theology that he is infusing into his fantasy is that death is a gift. And so I just wanted to just wanted to draw that connection. I don't actually have any particular point there. No, I think it's really evident in this story that death would be a kinder gift. And that's the big difference between this story and arsenic and old lace, which I want to... <laughs> encourage our listeners if they haven't watched the movie it is pure magic i mean it is a real delight and if you find a local production putting it on it was originally a play go see it it's so much fun it's so absurd it's so characteristic of this like 1940s uh theater and cinema but the main difference here is that the old ladies in arsenic and old lace also believe that death is a gift that is the gift they're giving their borders and in this story, this old woman is withholding the gift of death from her borders. Oh, that's a fantastic observation and a great connection, Brandon, that I just had passed me by. I'll make one more, I think, here before we sign off, Brandon, which is just to say that, of course, Wolf's magnum opus, the work that Wolf has written that, that is the fan favorite and generally regarded as being his best, The Book of the New Sun, is about a guild of uh, of torturers a guild of executioners a guild of people involved in the in the death industry and so these issues these questions of personhood and uh matters of the culture and rituals surrounding death attitudes towards death and how those attitudes define other aspects of our culture are going to be a theme again even when we get to wolf's magnum opus when we get to the book of the new sun that's absolutely right and in fact the episode that sets off the main action of the book of the new sun and this is a spoiler for those who have some reason read all of wolf's short stories but not read book of the new sun <laughs> um, uh, the action that sets severian off is giving the gift of death to one of his charges. So that's a really, really interesting point. Uh, so thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Glenn. Yeah, well, I'm as always, Brandon. I am. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm always pointing out how much we are seeing of the solar cycle in these early stories. So I was delighted to see 
again that here in this very short, very quirky story about an old lady who murders people with tea and then reanimates them. <laughs> but I think, Brandon, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and uh, chime in on, I think, a number of things we've invited you to comment on on this episode, such as what is going on with this transition from father to grandfather? Is the old woman alive or dead? And hey, send us your short stories from the same creative writing prompt that uh, got Wolf going on this. Uh, we'll look forward to, to hearing from you on on those or, or any any topic you, you found in this story. Yeah, absolutely let us know what you thought. This was a story that uh, surprised me more in the discussion than in the reading. So we hope you feel the same way. Next time, we'll be starting our coverage of Operationaries by reading and discussing chapters one and Two. So if you need to find a copy, please do so. That's going to be really exciting. It's Wolf's first major novel. So until then, we greet you and we say farewell. <laughs>